0: I know I've had some complaints about them myself and a lot of good information to help me improve my teaching. On today's show, Betsy Barry joins me to share about the research on course evaluations. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today I welcome to the show... Betsy Berry, Elizabeth Barry, and I'm excited to share a little bit about her background and to have this conversation with her about course evaluations. She received her PhD in Religious Ethics from Florida State University. And after that, she began her postdoctoral fellowship program that was designed to introduce recent graduates to the challenges and rewards of teaching undergraduates in the context of a residential liberal arts college. Since then, she has had extensive experience teaching in higher ed, and today she works as the assistant director of Rice's Center for Teaching Excellence. So we've had a couple of people from that department be on the show in the past. I'm so grateful for their contributions and for them introducing me to Betsy. Again, she is trained as a comparative ethicist, and her research lies at the intersection of moral philosophy and the history of religion with a specific focus on Muslim, Christian, and secular political ethics. And I would encourage you to visit the show notes at com slash 89, and we'll have a link to her biography where you can learn more about her teaching, which she continues to do at least one undergraduate course a year, and of course, is helping to develop the teaching skills of so many of the faculty at Rice. Betsy, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Well, thanks for having me. Well, I was so excited to be connected with you with some of, from some of your colleagues, and I'm excited about the topic we have to talk about, but I'm going to have us go on one quick tangent before we do that. And I'm curious, what is one thing that's not in your bio that's important for us to get to know about you so that we can have a full appreciation of you as a person?
1: Well sure I think there are you know probably many things but I'm glad that you narrowed it down to to <laughs> one specific thing for me to mention and I guess one personal thing that is particularly relevant to to the conversation today is that my husband is also an academic and he is here at Rice and he's in the political science department, but he's a methodologist. So he is an expert on sort of quantitative social science and research design. So uh, he has helped me, whether he's been happy about it or not, he's helped me a lot with sort of navigating the research on student evaluations over the past year or two and thinking about the way that the research is designed and quality studies, et cetera. So um, I've been very lucky in that regard as a humanist to have a social scientist by my side helping me think through this material.
0: And does that show up in dinner conversations, like my husband and I, when we can talk about teaching? <laughs> definitely, you know, yeah, again, I don't know. I mean, I think there was a point, I think,
1: you know, probably uh, four or five weeks into my research on this topic, where he was just like, you just need to take a statistics class. Like, <laughs> we can't sort of work through this through uh, dinner table conversations. But for sure, yep, we definitely would talk about it often. Uh, even today, I was sending him some questions about some of the things I've been reading that have recently been published. So it's great to have him uh, uh, as a back up, you know, to get a little help when I need it. And I actually did sit in for a little bit on one of his classes, but it's nice to be able
0: to have that around uh, outside of the working hours to get some help with this material. Speaking of this material, how did you first get interested in studying more about course evaluations?
1: Yeah, that's a, a great question. You know, it's funny, lately at the CTE, I've been spending a lot of time reading about student evaluations and talking about student evaluations and also grading. And I was reflecting the other day on how it's a strange thing that these two issues in teaching became my kind of areas of interest as someone who is trained in the humanities as uh, an ethicist. But then it occurred to me that technically both of these things are about evaluation, which is kind of what ethicists are into. So I thought, well, maybe I'm just somebody who's interested in evaluation, and that's why I was interested in, in also being an ethicist. As I thought about it more that in some ways both student evaluations and grading also have some ethical implications, some direct normative implications to them about, you know, how do we justly um, think about employment practices at our institutions and how do we think about fairness with our students? And so I think that's part of the reason that I've always been interested in both, both of these questions within teaching, among other things. And so when I started my position here at Rice, they were the faculty were already discussing, uh, looking over our student evaluation system, and they were thinking about revising the system. And I had just started my position at the CTE, and I initially suggested that, well, I know there's a lot of literature out there. I had heard from friends, but I didn't know much about it, that one of my first tasks as a CTE staff member would be to do a literature review for this committee. And so I decided to start reading the literature, and it was I had no idea what I got myself into. It was an extremely expansive literature. And then through that process, got more and more interested, presented to different community constituencies at Rice, and had many conversations back and forth, wrote a couple blog posts and conversations about it online. And and unexpectedly, I have found myself to be a sort of primary source of conversations about, about student evaluations over the past year in online communities that sort of think about teaching and learning. So didn't expect to do that, but it's been fun. And I'm glad and we're still moving forward at Rice and thinking through our evaluation system and possibly revising it. So I look forward to what will come. But that's how I got into it.
0: Before I was in academia, I used to train people on computers. And after each class, we would pass out the evaluations for those courses. And people used to call them smile sheets. That's oftentimes in the training business what, what they are. And essentially, they're, mm. they're if you just take what data you're getting, you're really taking whether or not they liked or disliked the instructor. And it was one of right. the things as I was first introduced to a professor of instructional design. He used to be out at Utah State, although he has since retired. But just the idea that actually what I was teaching my students to do was to follow my directions, click on this inside of Microsoft Excel, and then click on this. And then after they left the class, they had a great feeling and felt so inspired, but actually couldn't (laughs) solve problems with Excel, like I had hoped that they would be able to Was really eye opening for me. Mm -hmm. But what so if I compare those traditional smile sheets, to what's going on in the vast majority of our evaluation system inside of academia, is it fair to say we are at least one level up from there?
1: Well, it's unclear. I mean, and one of the first things that I think is important to talk about when you talk about the research on student evaluations is that when we talk about it in the research literature or even on blogs, et cetera, we often assume as uh, that the idea of a student evaluation is universal, that student evaluation is the same across different campuses and different institutions. And that's one of the things that's most striking when you get into the literature is that Most schools have a variety of different forms, different processes, different goals, and so it's really actually very hard to make any sort of definitive statement, generalized statement, about whether student evaluations are one step above the the SMILE form or not. Some may be and some may not be, depending on uh, how your institution implements student evaluations. You know, when I first started teaching, I've been teaching now for about 10 years. I sort of came into this kind of suspicious about student evaluations, in part because generally, for whatever reason, I've always been pretty good at get, getting students to like me. And so, and I had relatively good student evaluations, but I was always skeptical. I always thought that really what I'm getting in these student evaluations has nothing to do with whether they've learned or not, right? It's just about, they're happy to be in the class. They've kind of enjoyed, you know, what was happening. They, they cared about me. I cared about them. And I was always really curious about to what extent the, the evaluations that I was getting back in a semester had anything at all to do with student learning and that's kind of what drove my my research initially to see what the research had to say about that.
0: The, one of the things that I've thought a lot about often is that it seems like there would be an effect on when you distributed the evaluations. Mm -hmm. There's a, I wrote a blog called The Dip some years ago, just thinking about the traditional, it doesn't always happen, but just like teams have forming, norming, storming, performing, and adjourning, that there's a common pattern that'll happen within teams. There's kind of a common pattern that I see happen within semester long courses, in this case, 15 week classes. And so I wonder, is any of the research that you've looked at does it show that it has an effect if I were to give it during week 12 versus week 15 versus because by the end, uh, if you do it closer to the end, I imagine students have a pretty good idea of what their grade will be in the class. And perhaps that evaluation is more reflective of how pleased or not pleased they are with their potential grade.
1: Part of a question that is sort of interesting that you've in the question you've raised is what are we actually trying to evaluate? Are we trying to evaluate the quality of the course, are we trying to evaluate the quality of the teacher, are we qu- trying to evaluate the quality of the teacher in that instance of teaching the course? And so one assumption you would make is that if it's, if I'm trying to, if we we're interested in that course, right, and the quality of the teacher in that course, you need to wait till the end of the semester until the student has had enough information to sort of reflect upon the quality of the semester. But there's some studies, there's some interesting studies, and they're controversial, in fact, usually brought up to critique student evaluations, where they've shown that, at least in terms of certain features of teaching effectiveness, students can make judgments within about a minute, about half a minute, that are similar to the judgments they would make at the end of the semester.
0: Hmm. <laughs> so that,
1: that anything that happens throughout the semester seems to be that they had some sort of really good intuition or just based on things we don't want to actually worry about, right? That early on within the first 30 seconds, they, they made their judgments. And they and that's why people say, you know, the first day in class is really important because they make their judgments and they stick with them throughout the semester. It's actually interesting that it's a, the way that, that question your, your question is answered is depends upon what you're interested in evaluating. And if you're interested in evaluating the overall quality throughout the semester, you want it to be later in the semester. Most of the psychological research will say the most important thing is just that you don't leave too big of a window for the students to answer the question. So those of us that are now moving to online evaluation forms, if you give students, say, like a four week window to return their student evaluations, the students who respond in the first week of that four weeks window will have very different a different scenario and context than the students re- who respond at the end of the fourth week. And that's considered to be particularly problematic. But yeah, the grading question is an interesting one, which I also heard in there too, but I think I want to wait on that until <laughs> because that could take us a little bit far afield.
0: What are some of the most common complaints that we hear faculty talk about? And then we can we can go specifically and look at the sure. grade piece so okay. one of the biggest
1: complaints that faculty have about student evaluations is that it's not a reflection of teaching effectiveness. So we'll start there that it's actually not a reflection of teaching effectiveness. Now part of the problem there is, well, what do we mean by teaching effectiveness? And so some will say, well, it should at very least, whatever we mean by teaching effectiveness should be a marker of learning of whether the students have learned or not. And it's not clear that student evaluations are a reflection of learning. Faculty think that they might be a reflection of other things, whether that be whether the students like you, whether that be that they're getting good grades, the course is easy, etc. So that's one primary concern that faculty have is that it's it doesn't seem to be a reflection of student learning. But there's also a more subtle point that some faculty are also concerned that just because a student doesn't learn does not necessarily mean that you are uh, an effective instructor. And so there's also a larger philosophical debate about how we define teaching effectiveness. Is it tied to whether the students are learning completely? Or is it tied to the actual types of methods that I'm using in class and my knowledge of the subject material, how much time I put into it, my organization, my preparation, etc. Because there could be many other reasons why students aren't learning because they're not studying, they're not coming to class, etc. And so where does the teacher's responsibility come into it play a role there?
0: I'm curious about the two examples that you brought up, the whether they like you or not does any of the research show that we actually are able to learn from people that we like, that we that that, that that is a factor in our ability to learn in the class, or does that not show up?
1: I'm not so sure there's been a lot of research to look at the correlations between whether students like you and the correlations between whether you're doing well in student evaluations. But one theory of why there might be a correlation between high student evaluations and and learning is that, well, if students are happy in a class, they're more likely to be motivated to come to the class, to participate. They're going to be more engaged. They're going to be more interested. And so they will learn more. So it's certainly the case that that there's not a problem with suggesting that students liking a class is something we should strive to achieve, but that is not the same thing as learning, right? And it's important to, for us to all remember that as well, that just because the students like a class doesn't mean they're necessarily learning. So it works one way, but not not the other way. So we can all say that it has the potential to improve learning. But just because you like it doesn't mean that you're learning as much as we would want you to.
0: And then what about with the case of the course being easy? Does that show up to have mm-hmm. higher or lower course evaluations when the course is perceived as having been easy? That was one of the most surprising things in the research literature is that it actually turns
1: out that the harder the course is, the higher the evaluations you get. <laughs> mm-hmm. And this is where there's a, tr- there's a difference between grades right? And also, you know, and how well they perform versus the challenge that they have in the class and how much they feel like the workload is. Every school has a different form, but your form may actually have separate questions for workload Mm -hmm. versus grade, your expected grade, right? Or challenge. And so if you have a workload question, it turns out that the more work you give your students, the higher your evaluations will be. (laughs) There's some forms that actually split out, whether it was, they call the work as valuable work or busy work, And if you split it up along those lines, if students think the work is valuable, if they think all the homework they're doing and the work they're doing for your class is something that's helping them learn, you can go all the way up to 20 extra hours a week outside of class, and students will still be giving you higher evaluations. (laughs) Eventually, there's a drop-off point, right, (laughs) as you might imagine, if we're expecting 30 to 40 hours a week uh, for our students to work on their class. But that was really shocking to me. That actually works in the opposite direction, that the less work you give, the lower your evaluations will be.
0: And then there's an interesting interaction with
1: with grades as well.
0: Well, why don't you talk about that a little bit then, how grades come into play with course evaluations? Sure. So we do know
1: that the research does show that the grades you get are correlated with student evaluations on average across a section of a course. And so one obvious thought about that correlation is that, well, that's a sign that there is this relationship, this is what we call the leniency hypothesis in in the literature where faculty are giving you a good grade so that they'll get good evaluations and you're giving, students are giving good evaluations so that they'll get a good grade. So that's one interpretation of the relationship. But what a lot of the psychologists who've done work on measurement have said is there's a couple other interpretations as well. And one could be that actually you want grades and student evaluations to be correlated if you believe student evaluations are a measure of learning. And that's because if students are learning, they presumably will get higher grades. And so if it were the case that student evaluations reflect learning and they aren't changing with grades. So if you have a class where a bunch of students are getting A's because they all learned, you want the evaluations to be higher there. So some psychologists have said the fact that they're correlated and at a small level, by the way, incidentally, they're correlated. The correlation is relatively small. The fact that there's a modest correlation is actually something that proves their validity rather than that there's a bias. And then a third hypothesis, which I think is really interesting, is that they actually—the correlation between grades and student evaluations are actually tied to a third factor, prior characteristics. So, we know, for instance, that if students come into your class with a prior interest in your course material, if they are particularly motivated students, that you will get higher evaluations, that that is a bias in student evaluations. And we also know that that will affect grades. And so some people suggest that it's that third thing, the prior characteristics of your students that are leading to the correlation between grades and student evaluations. And what most people say is that it's really probably all three of these things working together that explain the correlation, but most likely, leniency is the one that can be ruled out. So just because there's a correlation, if if you've done studies at your institution and have seen that there's a correlation between grades and student evaluations, it doesn't necessarily mean that the leniency hypothesis is correct, because there could be other interpretations of that correlation as well.
0: In terms of the different disciplines in a university, one theory that gets thrown out a lot at my institution is that those disciplines that are more quantitative in nature will always receive lower evaluations than those that are more qualitative, or or what would more traditionally be thought of as the more interesting topics or disciplines to study. (laughs) How does that show up in the research that you did? Well,
1: actually, interestingly, in two ways. So the first thing to say is that the research literature does recognize that there are certain variables that do bias the results, uh, particularly on the, the overall quality question that's often on many of these forms. And so there's two ways in which I think those who teach quantitative courses can be disadvantaged. And one is that sometimes those quantitative courses, at least, for example, say in the case of my husband who's teaching in political science, their statistics course is required of all majors. And so if you're teaching a required course that students do not have a choice to take, when you said interesting, that made me think of this, right? Mm. Is that if the students aren't taking it of their own volition, it's not something that they're interested in, we know that that your evaluation numbers will drop. And actually in some systems and some validated measures, it can drop by an entire point if the students are not choosing to take the class out of their own interest. And that's a big deal. You know, on a five point scale, an entire point is 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 a big drop. And then we also see the literature shows that there are differences among the disciplines in terms of the average evaluation that faculty get. Now, how you interpret that is it's basically impossible for us to know what's causing that. I mean, you could make the joke and say, well, just, you know, humanities faculty are just better, right? I mean, that's what, you know, I, would often <laughs> I was joke about with my, to make
0: that joke. <laughs> my about
1: that. But obviously that seems kind of silly. But the problem is that there's no way we can actually test for that because there's no way you can do these controlled random assignment across A philosophy class compared to a chemistry class because they're different exams and different Mm -hmm. assessments. So it's very difficult to figure out why there's disciplinary differences. So most validated forms will control for discipline or or institutions will control for discipline, but we're not really sure why there's that difference. But we do definitely know that quantitative, uh, and not just quantitative, but STEM disciplines are lower. I have some STEM colleagues who their hypothesis is that STEM students are just more rigorous in terms of their evaluating. So it's mm-hmm. not that they're harder classes, they just are more stingy with their high evaluations. They're just the culture of of a certain type of student, which I thought was, was interesting. So there's a couple ways in which the, those biases show up for sure.
0: That is such an interesting example. Mm-hmm. Way back when, this is this is 20 years ago, my dad came to where I worked and took a computer Mm -hmm. class. And that was one of the benefits that we had of getting to work there was that a family member could come for free. And I went in to see him after the class was over and he had his evaluation (laughs) sitting there and he had given the instructor all nines. And in in that industry, I, I mean... That you pretty much would just get straight <laughs> tens if you were good at what you did. I mean, yeah. I would have evaluations for an entire month that were nine point yeah. nine eight, and and I was not yeah. unique in that industry. We really it was all about you know pleasing the customers, giving them great education, and, yeah. all that. and I was like, Dad, you can't put that in the box. And, and he had said because he has that very much that engineering type of yeah. person. He said. Well, they were great, they were wonderful, but there's always room for improvement. Right, and a nine is good, right? A 10 point mm-hmm. scale, a nine is good. So, so I, I mean, I, it is kind of interesting. And actually some of the faculty joke too that because it's also the
1: case that grade, grade distributions are different in STEM as well. And so it's kind of like if they're getting graded where they use the full distribution, if the, the STEM students are, they're also more likely to grade their faculty using the full distribution, <laughs> mm-hmm. whereas, you know, in the humanities, that may, there's more compression. So who knows? I mean, we, there's not a lot of literature to explain that difference, but it's certainly there is a difference that seems to show up for sure. And one thing it's worth noting, too, is there's a lot of research about the different questions that show up on student evaluation forms. So most of the stuff I'm discussing right now are all about that overall question. Overall, this instructor was effective in this class. The detailed questions about did they show up to class? Did they have knowledge of the subject matter? You know, were they enthusiastic? Those ones are much more messy and fuzzy in terms of these questions about bias. So most of the research literature really focuses on that question of overall effectiveness, which is worth keeping in mind at your own institution.
0: Has that shaped at all your thinking? Because I know you said you're just thinking about where you're headed at Rice, but has that shaped it to be thinking, gosh, maybe it's not even worth asking those kinds of questions if they don't necessarily tell us that much information? Or is that at all?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that a lot depends on why you're using these instruments on your campus. What are you trying to actually measure with these instruments? And so, you know, on the one hand, as I sort of mentioned earlier, you could be primarily focused on interpreting teaching effectiveness as whether the students have learned. Right, And if that's your primary focus, whether the students have learned, of course, the best measure of whether they've learned is direct measurement of learning through some sort of standardized assessment. But we don't do that in higher ed for interesting reasons. So if that's not a measure we're going to use, then we want to know whether students have learned. One of the best things to do is to ask them whether they've learned. And so part of the movement in student evaluations now is to focus on questions about learning rather than questions about what the faculty members are doing. Because at the end of the day, if you faculty can do very different things, but as long as the students are learning, that's what we care about. And so at Rice, we've been talking a lot about thinking about these questions. So removing some of those method questions and focusing more on what are the goals of your class? And have the students, asking the students themselves, have you achieved the goals that the professor set out in the class? So so the faculty have some control over sort of setting the learning outcomes. And I know that Stanford has moved to a system like this as well, where the primary focus of the student evaluation is on learning outcomes and their student evaluation of whether they've achieved those outcomes. But of course, students may not always know whether they've achieved the learning outcomes. So other folks have argued that, well, What's more important is actually the method in the classroom, and we should be evaluating teachers on whether they are actually using methods that have been, you know, proven in evidence-based research, et cetera. So in that case, then you would want certain methods in the student evaluations, but then there's a whole host of debate about which methods go into the the student evaluations, and that's a, a longer debate that we sort of decided to set aside at Rice, at least we're thinking about it at the moment, and instead focusing on learning outcomes.
0: I imagine that would be so tough because one professor might call it problem-based learning, but their version right. of problem-based learning doesn't look anything like their next-door neighbor's right. version of problem-based learning, even if we're using the same name yeah. to and describe the method. Yeah, even
1: things like, which is really funny, there's oftentimes on a lot of institutions questions like, did they return assignments on time, mm. right? Or did they show up to class prepared, and a lot of the research shows it's not clear that that's actually really necessarily correlated with learning, <laughs> how, the, how the faculty do on those questions. And so while we as an institution may care about those things in terms of evaluating those we've hired, right? It's, it, so again, it just depends on what do you want to know about when you're making decisions about hiring and firing, if that is an, even is the primary purpose of these forms, which I would argue it shouldn't be, you know, then you would ch- ask different questions. And so for us, we're really focusing on these forums as a way to improve our teaching at Rice, and since we wanted to improve our teaching, we are interested in asking questions that will be most helpful for that purpose.
0: How are you seeing all of this being covered by the press? Yeah, that's a great question, and that really is what motivated my first
1: public discussion of these issues. I had read a lot about evaluations in the Chronicle of Higher Education and Inside Higher Ed, and. I was very skeptical about student evaluations and what they might tell us. And so when I went to the literature, what I was most shocked by was not just that there were different conclusions in the literature, which there were, but there was also a lot of debate, but I was just more shocked by the fact that there was so much out there that had been written that was never being discussed in the popular press. And in fact, often what you would find is that the popular academic press would discuss one recent study that came out and everybody would be posting about it and blogging about it. And usually almost always they were critical of student evaluations and there would be no reference to the larger literature. So I was just kind of shocked by that. And that was something that I wanted to express to my colleagues who I know don't have time to read the literature that sometimes sometimes things that, that we read about in reports on the research literature are not always giving us the full story. And turns out that this is an extremely complex and sophisticated research literature. It's the most researched question in higher education. Thousands of peer-reviewed studies, that have they've been writing about it for 100 years. Um, so it's not something that we haven't looked closely at, but rarely do we as faculty get any access to that literature. And when we do, it's often oversimplified and in one, one direction, which was, was distressing to me.
0: That is really truly remarkable to me, and now mm-hmm. I just can't help but ask. So it's been thousands of studies, a hundred years. Is there anything that you that you have just gone in and said? How come no one ever asked this question about evaluations? It just bugs you to this day. Oh, that's a really interesting question. I mean, there are many things that were really. I mean, even just the example of the
1: grading relationships, the different way. You know, I know that a lot of schools will. Well, faculty are very concerned about grading, and so they're interested in whether there's a correlation between grading and student evaluations, but no one ever bothers to think about other possible causal relationships that might lead to that correlation. Mm. And so many things like that that the literature will highlight. But I also think just as a non-statistician, it was very helpful for me as a non-social scientist, not even just statistician, as a non-social scientist, to understand what it means for, stu- for a student evaluation instrument to be valid, and it doesn't mean that it's a perfect measurement. Um, and mm-hmm. that to understand that correlations of 0.5 are really strong in the social sciences, but that, that doesn't mean that if I get a score of a 4.4 and my colleague gets a score of a 4.2 that I'm necessarily a better teacher than them, or that the measure, the measure can still be valid, and it could still be wrong in one instance, right, in terms of ranking faculty. And that was really powerful and important for me to think about as well in terms of how these instruments get used by administrators.
0: What is some of the emerging research that's coming having to do with gender?
1: Yeah, there was, so in January, which is why this is good timing, in January, there was a recent piece that was published, um, and many of the, again, popular press sort of latched onto it and 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 began discussing it that actually looked at two prior studies on gender as a possible bias uh, in student evaluations and re-analyzed and with more sophisticated statistical measures that data. And one thing that's really interesting about gender even before that study came out is that there have been attempts to look at systematic gender bias in student evaluations. And There have been experiments where they bring bring students into the lab and they manipulate it that way. There have been observational studies and the results have been all over the map. Even in as early as 1993, there had been meta-analyses done on gender as a bias, which was surprising to me. And sometimes in the studies, you'll find that, that actually men get higher scores and other studies women get higher scores. And even when you account for statistical significance, that was the case. And so early on, at least in 1993, there was a sense that, you know, there wasn't any clear evidence about gender being uh, a bias in student evaluations. But one of the things they noted is that all of those studies were just correlational studies. So if it were the case, hypothetically, again, like humanities professors, that women were better professors, we just were, right? If it were the case that we were better teachers, then we should not be getting the same scores as men. We should be getting higher scores. And so a bias can still exist even if we're getting the same score as men. So there have been calls for studies that look at differential validity. So we would want to do validity studies to see if like the teachers who are actually better by comparing to the test scores, et cetera, would get lower scores because simply because they're a woman. And the recent, this recent study that came out um, by Phil Stark at Berkeley, who's looking at some studies that some data from France and then some data from online courses in the U S are really exciting in terms of their research design, but there are still some questions I have about the research design as well. But it's, it's moving us forward to think about, to do more research. And really, at the end of the day, I think, having looked at all of this literature, what I think about student evaluation research is that we just need more of it. That there's a lot of it that's been done in the past that seem to suggest that, you know, they're reasonably valid instruments, and there are certain biases that we know about. But that there's still room for doing more research to show that there are biases we haven't accounted for. There's room for making them better so that they are are more accurate. I'm always excited when there are new studies that come out like the one that just came out from Berkeley about gender. And I do think there have also been other studies. One thing important to say, too, there was a, I think sociologist, Ben Schmidt, maybe he's a historian, who created a database of all the words that were used in Rate My Professor evaluations, and you can search them by gender and discipline. And so you, there's this really just amazing, you know, graphic that will show that, you know, that women are, if you type in brilliant, for example, men in all disciplines are more brilliant than women. And so it's really fun, fun and depressing to play around with that, to see the way in which language gets coded in gendered ways. And that's one of the things that I think is really important to emphasize is that all of the research I've been talking about has been about the quantitative numbers, not about the qualitative. Very little research has been done on the qualitative feedback that students give us, which is often what we as faculty sort of focus on (laughs) for various reasons, because it's often so bold and, you know, strong strongly worded, but we don't really know much about the qualitative responses they give. And my hunch has been that that's where a lot of the gender differences come, come up and are coded or in the qualitative responses we get from students. And so that's also worth thinking about in terms of how our institutions use the qualitative versus the quantitative responses.
0: I mentioned to you, I don't know if it was on email or on the phone, but it doesn't matter. I mentioned that I had mm-hmm. just heard about Ben Schmidt's research that he had done on the right, my professor, but the conference I had seen it at, I was sitting toward the back of the room and couldn't see that well. And now I'm sitting here playing with what you're talking it's about. It's It's
1: really depressing. Part of the issue is you have to come up with the, the word yourself. And so it's hard to get a sort of systematic analysis. But if you type in something like organized, women are more organized almost across the board. But if you type in disorganized, Women are also more
0: mm.
1: disorganized across the board. And and there are a lot of words like that. And what that suggests, and the same thing with there are certain words where the positive and negative men are stronger at both. And and part of what that suggests to me, I mean, I don't have ev- any evidence for this, is that maybe women are evaluated along different metrics than men. So it's not that women are negative and men are positive, but that when students think about what makes a good female teacher they think about different criteria than when they think about what makes a good male teacher. And so when they start giving their qualitative feedback, they're going to sort of pull from different dimensions. I mean, who knows if that's the case, but it was interesting that both the positive and negative along certain dimensions would cluster for women or men, depending on what the, the language was. It's remarkable. Um, so it, was great. it was a really great service that he did. Um, I mean, one interesting thing is they've actually done studies of the quantitative numbers in Rate My Professor, and they've actually found there's no gender difference in the quantitative numbers, even on Rate My Professor, which is not as as validated as some of our other instruments. Really? That shocked me. If the the quantitative numbers in Rate My Professor, there's no gender difference, but the qualitative there is, I think that suggests probably what we see on our campuses is that the numbers may not be biased, but the qualitative responses may be very much gendered.
0: Hmm. As you're talking, I just wanted to make people aware that everything that we're talking about will be in the show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 89. And I know you are working on a annotated bibliography that if it gets done by mm-hmm. the time the show yeah, sure. posts, we'll put it up there. But if it doesn't, I told you not to put pressure on yourself. We'll add <laughs> it whenever it's done. But I just linked to the benschmidt.org slash prof gender. Right. And it's so worth taking a look at. It. It's absolutely it staggering. It's yeah. Well, before we move to the recommendation segment of the show, I want us to get practical for a minute because as we're listening and hearing about all the research that you've done on evaluations, how do we bring it home and actually as institutions and as individual faculty members actually use the data?
1: Yeah, and I think it's really important for me to emphasize because we kind of got into the weeds of the research that even if student evaluations, even if there's a scientific question of whether these measurements are valid or can be mal- valid if you get use a good enough form, even if the measurement is valid, it's not a perfect measurement and it's definitely not direct measurement of student learning. And even if it were, there are other things that we may want to take into consideration when thinking about whether we keep teachers on board. And so one of the things that I think almost anyone who writes about student evaluations in higher ed research will say is that we need multiple measures multiple pieces of information if you're using it for promotion and tenure decisions on campus. So I strongly am an advocate for not just student evaluations, but also portfolios, observations, you know, perhaps even if, if possible, some way of getting some sort of standard assessment into the mix as well of whether your students are learning. So that's if you use it for the summative purposes, which on many of our campuses, that's the reality that these will be part of our summative evaluation. But if that's true, I think we all need to advocate for other pieces of information to come in because even, even the strongest advocates of the valid- for the validity of student evaluations will still say they are not perfect measures and they need to be used with care and they also need to be used alongside other measures of teaching effectiveness. But then I think for my sake, what I'm most interested in, and I think faculty at Rice are most interested in, is the formative use of of student evaluations to help us improve our teaching and to help us get a sense of, of whether the things we're doing in the classroom are working or not. And then again, they're not perfect measures for that either. But I think that more than anyone else in our classrooms, you know, we can have people come and observe us. We can have people look over our syllabi, but our students are there every day with us. And if we want to know whether students are learning, there's no better way to know than to ask them whether they're learning, right? I mean, we, we can do it in a variety of ways, but getting as much feedback from our students about what's working and what's not working and whether they feel like they're learning is, I think, crucial first step for us improving our teaching in a formative way.
0: I mentioned to you that I hadn't figured out what my recommendation was going to be before Mm -hmm. we started the show. But I I think I may have just figured it out at the very last thing that you said. My recommendation is going to be that we also think carefully about how we present the evaluations. I know Uh, that. Yes, yes, absolutely. Especially because for so many of the students, I think that at least in my institution, they've expressed that they feel like they don't really matter and I've, yep. so I always try to take time aside that, that first of all, I want them to know that I really care about what they think. And I explain that you're going to fill out these evaluations and I won't get them for a while, but that I always read them and I blog about that the changes I want to make based on the feedback. That's something I'm trying to do a lot more of is to blog about the course evaluations I receive and yeah. mm-hmm. the improvements I'm trying to make. So I try to be transparent in that way. But then also as an institution that it might feel like if you have been trying to express that this person may have a better career option than teaching, (laughs) that there's a gap between when that feedback happens and when a decision of potentially changing Mm. that person out might happen. And they don't always understand about things like tenure or about even what an adjunct professor is. And I mean, all of these Things right. that are are new to them, I don't want to spend too much time because it does come at a time in the semester when they're pretty overwhelmed, but I do like to set that aside and also make sure I never make any jokes about the evaluations or I never i mean that sarcasm has no place in that particular conversation, and then I'm doing all the professional things of leaving the room and explaining to them that I won't see the evaluations till they're done, and I've done it a million times and I'll do it a million more times, and I just that would be my advice is just to really think carefully about how those are administered, yeah. And so you ready for my recommendation? I am ready. I'm excited. Okay.
1: So I think, you know, unfortunately, unless you're on a committee or you're you're heavy in sort of you're involved in faculty senate at your institution, you may not have a huge, faculty may not have a huge role to play in shaping what your evaluation form looks like and what the process is. And so one of the things that, so if you happen to have a form that you don't, you don't think works for you, or it's just not very helpful in terms of getting you the information that you want, I I would strongly recommend, and actually the research literature supports this, designing your own instruments and distributing it yourself, especially at the mid-semester point when you still have time to make changes in your course. And so this allows you to do two things. One is to get feedback and respond. And students, actually the research shows that your end of semester evaluations will go up even just giving the mid-semester evaluation at the mid-semester point. You don't even have to change anything. Just giving it shows that you, are ca- that you care. But, of course, if you respond and change things, then students are even more, um, you know, are, are happier and also I think probably are likely to learn more if you, if you respond to their needs in that way. But it also allows you to design a form that shows your, communicates to your students that you take their feedback seriously and to ask the questions you really want to know specifically about your course about your discipline, about the moves that you've made pedagogically. And I've done this for a number of years, and it's been extremely helpful, and it's something that we try to encourage at our center for all of our faculty to do. And if you have a teaching center on your campus, they're likely to offer mid-semester course reviews where they'll come in and watch you or talk with your students. And so I would definitely take advantage of that um, as students tend to immediately recognize that this is more serious in some ways than the end of the semester evaluation, or they think it is, right? They think it's more serious. And so you often get more substantive feedback at the mid-semester point.
0: I also want to just encourage people, I mentioned the show notes earlier, but that I'm going to have a link to some of the blogs that you've written about right, student yeah, evaluations. Mm-hmm. And then also you have a wonderful screencast that you, I think it was designed specifically for RICE, but certainly would be applicable right. to all of us that goes through yeah. your research as well. And anything else that you email me after the fact that you think, yeah. hey, stick this up I think there it would be helpful,
1: yeah, especially because some of the things I was talking about today, it's nice to have some visuals with. So uh, having that screencast, if you're curious, will will be helpful.
0: Yeah, it's really good. I'd I'd recommend it too. I just added a second recommendation. So check out the (laughs) show notes. They're at teachinginhighered.com slash 89. And Betsy, I just want to thank you so much for investing your time in the teaching in higher ed community and just for sharing with us today about evaluations. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. I'm so glad that Betsy was able to join me to have such an interesting conversation about course evaluations And if you would like to receive the show notes with all of the links of the things that we talked about during the show, you can have them show up to your inbox every single week by going to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And when you do that, you'll also receive a copy of the educational technology guide with 19 essential tools for helping you use technology to facilitate learning and also in your personal productivity. After I'm done interviewing each of the guests, I ask them, who would they recommend be on the show? Or what topics would they recommend that we talk about? And I'd like to, as always, extend that invitation out to you. Is there someone you think should be on the show that we haven't had on before or we have had on before and you want to hear more from them? Please feel free to make suggestions and give any other feedback about the podcast at teachinginhigred.com slash feedback. And one exciting thing, like we mentioned in a recent episode, up until today, when I record this two days from when this podcast will publish, we are on the homepage of iTunes podcast page. So if you would go up there to iTunes or whatever service it is you listen to and write a review or just give it a rating, it'll really help other people discover the show and really build our community so we can just continue to grow our own teaching and productivity. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.